Hi, welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding. I'm John Green, the host of Faith Seeking Understanding, and it is nobody's favorite day of the year. It's Ash Wednesday. It's uh, the day after Mardi Gras, which automatically makes it people who celebrated Mardi Gras' least favorite day of the year because they're not feeling well this morning. And then it's not anybody's favorite day of the year in any liturgical church that I'm aware of because we focus on sin. We focus on the mortification of the flesh for the next 40 days. We ask people to fast from this thing or that thing. In, in the church services over the next six weeks, we ask people to fast from saying the word Alleluia. We don't say Alleluia or sing Alleluia in liturgical churches for the next six weeks leading up to Easter. So it's a time of penitence, which is odd if you're not in the liturgical church. It's not normal. It's not something you do at all. There's never a period when you do this. It's one of the things, though, that, that causes me to love and appreciate the liturgical church. It's because there's a rhythm to the year. The rhythm isn't Christmas and Easter. The rhythm is, it, it begins in Advent prior to Christmas. It leads up to that. We, we lead up to the celebration of Christmas because we want to heighten the way we celebrate. We want to be truly joyous when the incarnation happens, when Jesus is born. And the way we get there is we focus on what's wrong in the world and our need for Jesus to come back. And so there's a longing in our hearts that, that comes in through observing that rhythm of life. And then after that, after Christmas, we celebrate Christmas for two weeks, and then we move on. And in Advent, by the way, we also don't use Alleluia's. And so then we move into Epiphany, that time of manifestation, revelation of Jesus. And so we're becoming more and more aware of the ways in which he was revealed to the world. But we're not focusing just on the way he's revealed to the world. He's still being revealed in us and to us during that time. And so we do it not because we want to look back and have a nice historical review of the life of Christ. We want to do that so that we're allowing him to be reborn, rebirthed, re-imaged through us by focusing on him then we're taking in his spirit, we're taking in his teaching, and we're taking in his life. And so we're focusing for, on that. And then we, we finish Epiphany last Sunday, and we start today with Ash Wednesday, and for the next six weeks, then we focus on not what's wrong with the world, but what's wrong with us. Because <laughs> it's easy to focus on what's wrong with the world. Any idiot could do that. But it takes work to prepare yourself to deal with the sin in your life. We can deal with the gross sins in our lives. If we're alcoholics, we know that. If we're drug addicts, we do that. If we're addicted to porn, we know that. If we're, you know, all those kinds of things are obvious kinds of things. But what about things like gossip? What about things like slander? What about where my treasure is? And usually the way I can tell where my treasure is, where I spend my time, what I give my attention to. And I tend to do that in places that I shouldn't. And not that they're overtly sinful. I don't spend my time looking at porn, for instance, but I do spend my time looking at political stuff, looking at sports stuff, those kinds of things. And so I, my attention is not where it ought to be. It's not on the Lord. It's not on the one who gave me life and who gave me salvation. That's not where my attention is. And so I need to focus myself back on that. I need to recognize where my treasure is and where my heart is. And so I've got to determine where is my heart. And so that's the purpose of Lent is for us to be able to determine where our hearts are. And so what we're encouraged to do is look at our lives and see where it is we're giving our attention and our, 
our hope and our enthusiasm, our joys and all that kind of thing. And then we're supposed to repurpose and recenter ourselves. Anything that takes us away from the joy of the Lord being our strength and something else being our strength is something we should be turning away from and we should be giving less attention to. It may not be sinful in any kind of an overt way, but it's sinful in the sense that we're to be devoted to him. And where we're not, those are the things that become sin for us because we're not giving him our best. We're giving our best somewhere else. And so that's the purpose of Lent. And so that we can then with blazing joy, as the psalm says, celebrate the resurrection. But we got to pass through some stuff to get to the resurrection, right? We have to do on Monday, Thursday, we have to deal with the Last Supper. We have to deal with Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. And then we have to deal with him being arrested, being betrayed by Judas and being arrested. And that whole evening of stuff that comes in there, that chaotic scene where he's dragged before the Sanhedrin and then he's taken to Pilate, he's taken to Herod and he's back and forth and the disciples are confused and don't know what to do. They're at one point cut off the servant of the high priest's ear and Jesus has to fix that even in the midst of all this. And then Peter denies Jesus three times. It is the most chaotic thing in the world. And then you go from there to the awful events that, for instance, are in the Passion of the Christ by Mel Gibson, where you can see that so clearly. And then you, you see that, and you recognize and realize all that Jesus suffered that day, the scorn, the beating, the everything else that happens in here, the rejection by the Jewish people of the Messiah God prepared for them, and ultimately the crucifixion and the reviling that he takes even as he's on the cross, and then his death. And then Saturday, we take a break. We are quiet on Saturday. We don't do anything in the liturgical world. And then we celebrate with blazing joy on Easter because we pass through the valley of the shadow of death with Jesus by immersing ourselves in that experience. And then from there, we move towards Pentecost and we look at the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. And then we finally get to the ascension 40 days after the resurrection. And then 10 days after that, we celebrate Pentecost. And then we don't really know what we're doing for the next several months. We, we call it this long green season. And what we're really doing is focusing on how to apply the teachings of Jesus in our own life. That's the main focus of that long season. But late in the fall, having preached this lectionary for 20 years now, I, I'm aware that what is happening late in the fall is it begins with some mildly prophetic kind of things that point towards the problem in the world. And it begins to kind of turn us a little bit in the direction where we need to go and we will go deeper during Advent. So that's the church year. And there's this rhythm every single year. And I begin to long for each of those seasons. I can even long for Lent because I can know at the same time yeah, there's stuff in my life that's not the way it ought to be. My focus has wandered. My thoughts have, have drifted in a different direction. I'm giving way more attention to these things over here than I am there. College football season is particularly difficult for me for that. But there's other things, too. Like I said, with politics, I, I can get immersed in Twitter. I can get immersed in all this other stuff and lose focus. And I become less like Jesus. I become an angry guy because my team has been bad for about 10 years. I can become an angry guy because my political team is up or down, as it were. And I, I can be, so if my team's up, then I'm mad at the other team for what they're trying to do to take them down. If my team's down, I'm mad because they're down. 
So I can go either way with that, but I can be mad about it either way. So it's perfect. Um, but we can we can let ourselves get so immersed in those things that our emotions and everything about our lives are suddenly out of whack with the truth, <laughs> with the eternal truth that is Jesus. We can lose our joy too easily. We can lose our focus too easily. We can forget who we are. And who we are is those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. There is no greater joy we could ever have than knowing we have eternal life because of Jesus. And yet, I can spend a lot more time in any given day and even week thinking about other things. Not being immersed in the Word of God. Not being immersed in the worship of God. I can let too many things enter in and take over in my life. And so I need Lent to force me out of that. To, to say, take a minute, think about what's going on in your life, where your life is, what is the most important thing. And if anybody talked to you tomorrow, John, what are the things you would be most likely to talk to your friends about? Is it Jesus or is it football? Is it politics? Is it whatever? I don't know what other people talk about. Those are just the things that I talk about. And the things that I tend to talk about with my friends, sometimes Jesus comes into the conversation, actually, um, but a lot less often than that other stuff. And so that's what I need. You know, Lent is a time when you give things up. When you say, okay, I'm not going to do this. I can remember uh, a bishop one time telling the story of he went and visited a family during Lent. They were invited him to dinner, and so he went to dinner, and the little boy in the family came up, and he said, Bishop Dixon, does my daddy have to give up cigars for Lent? Bishop Dixon said, no, he doesn't have to give up cigars for Lent. He said, well, oh, thank God. <laughs> so Bishop Dixon looked at him and said, so why are you so thankful for that? He said, because when my dad doesn't smoke cigars, he's the grumpiest man on earth. So, I mean, it's not like giving up cigars is a bad thing for Lent, but it's, is it, is it really the issue? You know, you can be too, you know, connected to your cigar. You, you, that can be the biggest joy in your life. And I understand all that. So those things are worth giving up. But I think Lent is actually calling us to something a lot deeper than that. I think Lent's cause, calling us to take a pause and truly think about it what the aim of our life is, what is the main thing for us. And too often we have to acknowledge the main thing is not Jesus. It's not his cross. It's not the mission he's given us. And hopefully what we can do is hear that because the first lesson that we have today is from Isaiah. And it begins with God telling Isaiah, cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression." to the house of Jacob their sins. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgressions, to the house of Jacob their sins. There's not a preacher alive who wants to do that. There's, um, there are people who are quick to be able to tell you your sins. Jesus has something to say about them. He says, deal with this. Get the log out of your eye before you take the speck out of your brother's eye. So those people are not the same as this. Not a single person out there is called to sit and spend all their time telling other people what they do wrong. So that's not what this is. This is a, a message to the people of God to say, I have a problem, Isaiah, and I need you to make sure that you're telling the people what their sin is. What's the point of that? Is it, is it to beat them down? 
It's not, actually. Because at the end of that passage, this is from Isaiah 58, he says, when you do this, when you begin to become more like me, more like I've told you to be and do the things that you've been given to do, then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour out yourself for the hungry, satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. You'll be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You'll be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. So it's not to punish his people. It's not to beat his people down and cause them to believe there's no hope. I really am as horrible as Isaiah just said I was. I'm a miserable excuse for a person of God. That's not the point at all. It's for the people of God to say, I recognize I'm not who I'm supposed to be. I've sinned against you. I've sinned against others. But I repent of that. I recognize my sin. I've been so comfortable in my sin that I no longer regard it as sin. I now have to deal with it. But if I deal with it, all that other stuff is the promise. What what does God want from him? He wants him to turn this one so he can bless them, so he can be with them, so his presence can be among them. He wants his people. He loves his people. Wayward though they may be, he wants his people. And so that's the call of Lent, is for us to turn and for us to begin to say, Lord, we've wandered, we've strayed, we are not the people we're supposed to be. Would Jesus be proud of the way that I spend my time or or am I spending it in ways that mean nothing ultimately? Like I said, you don't have to be doing horrible things. It's just, what's? it's like one of my biggest things about driving For instance, if there's a a wreck on the side of the road and the police are there and all that kind of stuff, it it infuriates me to be behind a group of people who, as they drive past this horrible scene, are looking and slowing down as they go by. And it's not for traffic reasons that I feel that way. The reason I feel that way is, is there anything you expect to be edified by by looking at that? It could be horrible carnage over there. And I'm not saying pass by and don't pay any attention to it, but you're not going to stop and do anything. So why are you doing this? And so I think often in our lives, that's more what I'm really talking about with this whole thing about Lent is, is that our attention should be pointed straight ahead of us in the road. If it's not, it goes somewhere else. Now, I know that, that in a lot of the Protestant world and a lot of Christianity today, they, they hear a message like this and they think about something like thinking about my sins for the next 40 days. And you think, this is insane. No, we're not that. We're Christians. We, we live on the other side of the cross. I don't have on the other side of the tomb. I, I live in the resurrection world. Well, it doesn't mean you're without sin. and It doesn't mean you're perfect. Um, if, if, it, if it did, the church would be a more powerful influence in the world today. There's a reason people look at the church and say, bunch of hypocrites. So don't come at me with, it's stupid to focus on sin because we look at a world and we look at a church that has not focused on sin and talked about sin very much for the last however many years. And we see the bitter fruit that comes from that.
So as, as we move forward in the liturgy of Ash Wednesday, I'm going to read something. I'm going to read it to you now. And it says, Dear people of God, the first Christians observed with great devotion the days of our Lord's passion and resurrection, and it became the custom of the church to prepare for them by a season of penitence and fasting. This season of Lent provided a time in which converts to the faith were prepared for baptism. It was also a time when those who, because of notorious sins, and what that means is that are well known to the community at large, had been separated from the body of the faithful, were reconciled by penitence and forgiveness and restored to the fellowship of the church. Thereby, the whole congregation was put in mind of the message of pardon and absolution set forth in the gospel of our Savior and of the need which all Christians continually have to renew their repentance and faith. And I want to talk about that for just a minute because it's we're in a time when when there's a panic in some places but certainly an awareness everywhere of something called the coronavirus and so we're worried about how we're going to prepare in fact right before we started tonight we're watching on the news as the president held a news conference about what we're doing to make sure that the coronavirus doesn't become like the flu pandemic of 1918 so we're constantly, it seems, being pushed in that direction. I can remember the H1N1, the, the SARS virus, the whatever else. There's the, the, the swine flu, and I can't remember the others. But we're constantly being taught to fear by the media and politicians and everything else who, who prefer that we live in fear. But, but one of the things that always comes up, a word comes up every time this comes around, and I can remember this word from the time I was a little kid. So apparently this kind of hysterical thing has gone on forever. The word is quarantine. The word means it's a corruption of two old Venetian words, so from Venice. It's a corruption of those two words and kind of mash those things together. And what it means is 40 days. And so if we think about Lent as kind of a quarantine, whereby that we are separated from most of the other things that capture our attention, and we're no longer allowed to indulge in those things, then what do we do? I mean, I saw a lady on a news show yesterday. She is being quarantined in Japan because she tests positive for the coronavirus. The problem is she's not, um, she's completely asymptomatic. But what they've got her in is a, is a unit by herself. People come and give her food. They're masked up and gloved up and everything else. And But this lady is bullied. She's having a great time. She says, I'm making the most of this. My church is doing things for me and all this other kind of stuff. So she said, but, you know, so what do I do? She said, well, they gave me an iPad. And so, you know, I can binge watch Netflix stuff. I'm too busy at home to do that. But then also I put on praise music and I dance around in this room all by myself. And so what's happened, and they said, how are you living with that? A lot of people would hate this. And she said, no, actually, it's a great time for me to reconnect with the Lord because I don't have any distractions other than this Netflix thing. But that's the purpose, actually, of Lent. It's the point of Lent. It's the point of this quarantine period. And, and so as I read to you, it, it talks about what, how the church did this initially, and it talks about setting aside people. Well, that was, you know, got to remember, we're talking about third, fourth century. We're talking about the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church. We're not talking about 600 Protestant denominations or whatever the number is. It, this is one church that did this. I mean, there were more than one church. Well, at that time, there was only one, actually. And so they observed it a certain way. Well, now, when they observe Lent, the first 
Old Testament passage that they read on Ash Wednesday is actually from Leviticus, and it's about leprosy. And if you missed my talk on leprosy, it's on the site. But leprosy is not the disease that we know today. No Jew, no rabbi at least, would ever say that it's the same thing. What they believe is that leprosy is a result of sin, and it's a particular sin, and it's gossip. It's slandering other people in the community, and God brings this on. And it only happens when you're in the land. When God gives the, um, the commandment to Moses concerning leprosy, it presumes they're in the land. And it talks about your house, this will happen to it. Well, they didn't have houses when they were in the wilderness. So they see this is only a possibility when they're in the land and in control of the land. And it's to make sure that the community is not harmed from within. And so leprosy comes on people and they then have to be excluded from the community. And they have to be excluded until that's better, until the leprosy is gone. So it, it's a time when we should consider very similar to that. What are we doing that's destructive to the community around us, the community of believers, the church we're in, the community of believers, our friends who are in Christ, who as soon as they walk away, we're talking to somebody else, we're going to say something bad about that person, whatever. You know, it, it, so it, it's, that's what this is about. That's the point. Is this, It is similar to leprosy. What are we doing that's destructive of community, but it's also this. It's also what are we doing that's not building up our community? Whether we're not part of that community, we're taking our time and we're going somewhere else, we're not going to church, we're not participating in the life of the community or whatever, but we're to refocus our lives here. So uh, it, it's it's similar to that. We, we become separated from the community and the community is not all it could be because we're not all we could be. So this is about building up community, not just us. But the way that the Roman Catholic Church did it in those days is really interesting and I, and I think it's worth looking at for just a minute. So what happened was that, that, that notorious sinners, people whose sins were well-known in the community, had to confess their sins before Lent began, and they confessed those to the priest. And so they went to the priest, they confessed their sins. The priest then took them to the bishop on Ash Wednesday outside the church. There they stood, barefoot, dressed in sackcloth, with their heads bowed in humility and contrition. The bishop then gave every single one of them acts of penance to do, depending on what their sins were. Then they were allowed to come into the cathedral, but on the basic presumption that you're going to do those things. And so we're going to allow you to come one step further. You can come into the cathedral. And they had to hold hands. They had to recognize we're not part of that other community, but we are a particular kind of community. And that community is going to have a shape over the next 40 days. And it's going to be acts of penitence, it's going to be fasting. They're going to live together. And so it's like a leper colony. They quarantine them outside the church for the next 40 days. But they all follow in holding hands with those in front of them. And then they come to the altar and they're, they're forced <laughs> to recite four psalms. And they're all penitential psalms. <clears throat> but the bishop and the clergy lead those. So they're part of the community but only in the penitential sense. And then each person comes forward. The bishop laid hands on him, sprinkled him with holy water, put ashes on his forehead, which we're going to do tonight, and then put a sackcloth tunic on them. And then they were let out, and they couldn't come back into the church until Monday, Thursday, Thursday before Easter. So they were set aside for these 40 days, and they were not allowed to be in other human contact with anybody except other sinners. 
during that time. And so they would spend all of Lent apart from their families. I'm not talking about single people. I'm talking about married people. They were not allowed to be with their families during this entire season of Lent. And they would go to a monastery or some other place, and they spent their time in prayer, manual labor, and works of charity. They had to be barefoot all the time. They were forbidden to speak with others. They slept on the ground or on a bed of straw, and they were not allowed to bathe or cut their hair. Anybody ready for that? <laughs> you think, I'm being hard. <laughs> so, but on Holy Thursday, they would bathe, shave, cut their hair, put on clean clothes before they presented themselves in the cathedral for the solution of their sins. And then after that, they were allowed to attend communion. Can you imagine how wonderful that would be? You're like the leper who comes to Jesus and says, if you will, you can make me clean. And so they've come to Jesus. They've confessed their sins to the, to the priest and to the community because these are notorious sins. So they've confessed them to the community. They've laid themselves at the feet of the community and said, what do I need to be to do to be restored to community? It's all about Jesus. So it's, it's even though you're doing these acts of penance and all that kind of stuff, it, you're praying and what you're focusing on is the love of Christ for those who have sinned. And so when you receive communion for the first time, after going through all of that, a joy you would experience of being restored to communion and fellowship, not with the church alone, but with Jesus, with Christ alone. You're being restored to him. It's like Peter being restored after he sinned against Jesus. And what a joy that would be. And so there's this incredible thing that happens and it's intended to happen in the church and is intended, frankly, to happen with Lent in all our lives. And it's funny because the, the word quarantine made itself out of church and it came into common use in 1575 uh, in Venice. And that's the reason that it's quarantine and the word, the word comes from there. And what was happening was it was a horrible epidemic of plague. It killed about 50,000 people in a two-year period. Almost one in three Venetians died during that period of time. And so they took action and they said, okay, here's the thing. We're going to form a three-person commission and every ship that comes in they're going to decide what happens with that ship. They're either going to ban them from coming in altogether, or if they suspected there was any kind of an infection on the board, and if they thought there was a danger to the city of Venice, they would tell them, you've got to go spend the next 40 days in this island of Lazaretto before you can enter. If you do that, then you can come in here. The 40 days has no basis in medical fact at all. It's only all about the Bible. They looked and they find 40 days, periods, all the time when, when things have to be set aside before they come back. And so they believe, not in magic, they believe that there's a reason for 40 days. And so they set it at 40 days, and that's the reason it's called quarantine. So then I'm going to take a principle from another weird place. And that principle is from Kundalini Yoga, which I know nothing about. I'm not endorsing it in any shape, form, or fashion. But I believe that all philosophy is can be inspired by God. You can God speaks as Paul talks about that in in Acts when he's in Athens. He, he talks. He pulls stuff from philosophers and pulls them into his sermon. <clears throat> and so what they teach is this, and it makes sense. It takes 40 days to break a habit, 90 days to gain a new habit. 120 days and you are the habit and a thousand days you're the master of it. So what we have to find, kind of figure out is what needs to be changed in our lives? What is it that needs to be broken? And the goal would be if I break it, then 
I should have a new habit that broke it because, well, there's something else going on in my life because I made room for it. And then is that a healthy thing? And then focus on that. And then keep focusing on that until it becomes master and you're a master over all those other things. And so that's the point of Lent is to push us into a place where we can begin to take control over our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit and they can be lived fully for the glory of God and not for our own glory, but for the glory of Him alone who gives us life. Thanks for listening to Faith Seeking Understanding.